Romans 2, verses 17 to 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Well, this morning, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me to Romans chapter 2 as we continue our study. We're one month into our study of Romans chapter 2, and in Romans, we have seen how the Apostle Paul has broken humanity into these two basic categories. We have the two basic categories of the Gentiles who practice evil, and they give approval to others who do the same. And then in Romans chapter 2, we have the Jews who condemn evil and yet practice the very things that they condemn. Now, you'll notice something that really Paul is establishing one point. And the point is that the Lord will render judgment not based on our approval or condemnation of evil in these two basic categories of humanity. He's establishing this that the Lord will render judgment on the basis of our practice, or as Romans chapter 2, verse 12 says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So the point is that there are none who are going to escape judgment. So this morning, as we consider our passage in Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 17, there's a weighty warning waiting for us here for the religiously initiated, for those who know the Lord and the righteous way of the Lord to whom his way has been revealed. But even more important than this morning's sort of surface level application of don't be a hypocrite, you know, I, I was thinking about this even before we look at what the, I think the really bottom line is, is this going to be a very short sermon and it's a straightforward text. It's not terribly confusing. It's don't be a hypocrite. It's a problem that dishonors God and you'll be judged as such. But I think that there is something that Paul is pressing forward in a reality that we've been considering in Romans 2 that's worth our pressing into at length this morning. And it's that reality that we've made reference to. One commentator puts it this way, human inadequacy in light of divine standards. That perhaps if the application point is simply stop it, we know we won't. Heavenly Father, it's appropriate that this moment in our service after a prayer of confession that we are situated in this place where we've heard of a holy God, we've sung praise to the honor and glorifies you, and yet the very lips that have sung this praise have also had to come to you in confession that you are holy, that you are glorious, that you are worthy of honor, and we are not. And yet you've called a people like ourselves to gather in your holy name. 
Lord, we can hear your instruction. We can receive the word of your law that reveals to us your holy character and your good way for creation and for all of humanity. Yet we know we have not kept it. And no matter the severity of the warning that's before us today, we will not in and of ourselves not walk in hypocrisy. And so, Lord, we pray that by some mercy, by some greatness of your holy and worthy name, we would see your grace this morning and that we would see that there is no hope apart from your grace, that you would do that work in this congregation, that we would not just see this so that we also could add our name to those who know the truth, but that we would become situated under this grace and live in light of your mercy and make that proclamation known to the honor of your glorious name the places to which you have sent us, Lord. We pray that you would do all of this miraculous work in our midst by your word and spirit this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is laying out for us in our text this morning, and again, I hope you have it still open so you can follow along with me. I want you to see what's there, right? Romans chapter 2, verse 17 and following, that he's going to lay out two sets of four claims. I thought about this as we put together the slides. We try to do as few slides as we can because I I don't want the slides to give you the sermon outline. As much as possible, I want the sermon outline to be in front of you so you can go home with the sermon outline even if you lose your notes. You know what I mean? The scriptures ought to provide our outline. And this morning, it's a very clear reasoned argument. Two points with four claims within each point. So Paul lays out two sets of four claims by the self-proclaimed Jew. That is the one who knows that he himself is the religiously initiated. He knows that he has the knowledge of God and he knows that he has the commission to make God known in the world. These two sets of four claims are broken into the personal and then the relational. The first set of claims is personal The second is relational. Let's look at the personal first. The claim in verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew, all right, and then what he's gonna do is he's gonna unpack four statements about what it means that someone would call themselves a Jew personally. And and, and really this could be summarized in a very personal way as one who, who loves God and loves his way. At least that's the claim being made here. If you call yourself a Jew, By calling oneself a Jew, one is making an explicit acknowledgement of the four statements that follow. These four statements are the essence of the Jewish identity. Look at them with me. If you call yourself a Jew and first, rely on the law, second, boast in God, third, know his will, and fourth, approve what is excellent. First, rely on the law. To be a Jew is to rely on the law. One's knowledge of God and his righteous way is through the law. It's how God has made himself known to the people. For the Jew, there's a deep and confident reliance upon what God has revealed in his law. And this is good. Second, if you call yourself a Jew, you're one who boasts in God. The Jew knows God. I mean, that's a boast. That's something that's worth boasting. If that's true of you, you ought to to be 
pleased. You ought to know yourself blessed. You ought to consider yourself happy because you know God. The Jew doesn't philosophize about God, doesn't deduce God or theorize about God. God himself has spoken to the Jew. And so his boast is in God, not in his philosophy, not in his wisdom, not in his deduction or observation, but in revelation. The Jew doesn't wander off after many and diverse gods of the pagans. And they boast in this. They ought to. They, they know the one true God. The Jew's boast is in God. Third, he knows his will. The Jew knows the will of God. Imagine. Imagine knowing the, the actual divine purposes in history. It's one thing to know the eternal power and the divine nature of God, as we saw in Romans chapter one, that's common to all mankind. It's another thing altogether to have been given by God himself access to the mysteries of the purposes of creation. Imagine knowing the very will of God. The Jew has revealed in the law the mysteries of God for his purposes for man. And fourth, the Jew approves what is excellent. The law gives the Jew not just a knowledge of arbitrary commandments. I mean, you know that, right? It's why we can say that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Why? Well, because it's just the right set of arbitrary standards that, you know, if we do them, things will work out okay. No. No, the law of the Lord approves what is excellent. It's not just a knowledge of arbitrary commands. It's instruction in what is good and what will actually satisfy the human soul, the Jew knows what is divine on the one hand and what is worldly on the other. And all of this, if you look at the passage, all of this is because you are instructed from the law. So we have a claim, I'm a Jew, that means four things, and all of this comes from the fact that the Jew has been instructed by the law. Now, I wonder if there is a manner in which we could apply verse 17 to ourselves in this way. I have a few questions about this passage, even as I'm reading it. What, what do I get from this? And I wonder if one of the ways that we could apply this passage is like this. If you call yourself a Christian, is that, a, is that a proper application of the text here? Is that what we ought to jump to, read ourselves into the text, and then walk out of it with a few instructions and, and a bit of wisdom for ourselves, if you call yourself a Christian? Now, on the one hand, if you're going to actually hear the reasoning of Paul, that as he's moving it forward in our passage today, we won't insert words there that he could have used. He, he could have said, now, if you call yourself one who is a follower of the way, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, he could have said that, but he didn't. And so we ought to, first of all, answer the question of whether or not we should insert the words, if you call yourself a Christian, with the answer, no. No, we ought to pay attention to what the words are and what they mean for us first. First reason why. Paul says, if you call yourself a Jew, 
The reason why he says that, this is going to be shocking. Are you ready? It's because he's talking about Jews. <laughs> the reason you can't just insert the word Christians is he's not talking about Christians in any sort of a general sense. He's not talking about the disciples of Jesus Christ as a whole because he's talking to Jews. Remember, Paul has addressed this letter to the church in Rome. They have the proclamation of the gospel. In fact, their faith is proclaimed in all the world, it says at the beginning of the letter. He could have said, now, to Jewish believers, but he doesn't say that. He could have said, now to all believers, Jew first and then the Gentile, who have the benefit of the knowledge of the law according to scripture. But he doesn't say that. He didn't. He's driving his point toward the explicit issue of the hypocrisy among the Jews who have not received the gospel, who know themselves to be processors of the law, but as of yet have not taken hold of the truth of the gospel. So he's speaking to those who possess the law, and we need to make sure that we hear him as such. Secondly, Paul is speaking to those whose main concern is reliance upon the law. Now listen, that's not negative. That's good. If God gives you something and he spends literally century and millennia holding it out to you and calling it to your remembrance, you ought to rely upon it. The law is perfect. It revives the soul. The Jews boast is in the Lord. He is blessed to know both the will and the way of God. All this is because he's been instructed by the law. But there are two ways to receive the law of God. First, God, you, you got to understand, God gave his law that the people would know God's own holiness. God gave his law so that people would know God, not an arbitrary standard that you need to obey in order to get something. God gave his law so that we would have God and so that we would have our sinful desires laid bare. So essentially what the law does is it gives us God and it gives us ourselves. So for many, this leads to either further rebellion against God in the pursuit of our evil desires on the one hand, or the reality of the law giving us God and a glimpse at the reality of ourselves, it can lead to a self-righteous effort to prove to God and to prove to self and to prove to others that you yourself can be holy by the keeping of the law. It's like the law comes in and says, caught ya. We're like, oh man, I got caught. Now I'll do better. Do you see? That's often how we respond, either with rebellion or self-righteousness. But the correct way to receive the law of God is neither of these. It's actually with faith. Faith. Like, what is the, what, how do you receive command with faith? Well, it's to confess that the way of the Lord revealed in his law is good, and that you, on your own, would perish under the law. So you see the law and you say, man, that reflects the holy, divine, glorious, honorable one. And I'm not him. Man, I don't have any hope. And that according to God's covenant revealed in temple worship and the whole of the sacrificial system, the Lord will provide a way to cleanse even the one who falls short of the glory of God revealed in the law. 
That's what it means to receive the law with faith, to say, it's good. I see it's good. It's not me. And in that very law, with all of the worship and all of the atoning works that God gives to us to point to one who is coming, a Messiah that is coming, we say, the Lord will provide. Not I will provide, and not I will rebel, but the Lord will provide. Paul is speaking to the Jew who has the law, which ought to receive the law with faith, but fails to be humbled by a knowledge of God. So if we're going to hear Paul's main point, to which, uh, which is to demonstrate how, though the Jew has been given the good gift of the law, he's not righteous because he possesses the gift. But rather, his main point is that the righteousness does not come by a possession of the law, as can be demonstrated by the fact that those who possess the law walk in hypocrisy. If we're going to hear the argument, what we're going to see is that righteousness comes by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where Paul is going in unpacking this argument. Righteousness, listen, comes by faith. Now, the temptation toward self-righteous moralism and the hypocrisy that so often accompanies a knowledge of God according to the law is not exclusive to Judaism. And I think for that reason, it is appropriate to pause and perhaps not insert ourselves where the argument needs to run forward and make sure we hear that what he's speaking to the Jew who has received and is under and instructed by the law. And yet I can't read it and not see myself there. Man, I'm just like these guys. There's, there are Christians whose moralism demonstrates the reliance upon the law rather than grace. And we shouldn't presume ourselves to be without that exact same error. My point is this. I don't want to make this morning's message real, real simple. We're all hypocrites. I want to make sure that we're paying attention to the argument so we get Romans, so we get the letter, so we get the argument, not just one little thing pulled out about hypocrisy. But it could be said of all who have heard the gospel this morning that righteousness does not come by hearing the gospel but by hearing with faith. And there's something that is corrective for us here that has, has come from a sort of moralism about passages like this. There is a corrective against anti-Semitism. You see, if this is true, if we ought to see ourselves in here, even if it's not in this particular place being written directly about us, we are left without excuse for an equally hypocritical moralism of anti-Semitism. We too have access to the law of God. You know that, right? Well, I was given to the Jews and preserved, and many suffered in the preservation of that. There was a remnant that preserves that we might also know God by that same word, and we might also be confronted with the reality of our sin, and, and there are those who have that that would rise up in hypocritical moralism over the Jew. It doesn't work. We have a greater revelation than that even. We have the gospel itself, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God that has appeared in the gospel apart from the law. 
You see, neither the Jew nor Judaism is the error being exposed in this passage. As we'll see, the error Paul is continuing to expose is the error of presumption and the error of hypocrisy. And that is in no way unique to the Jew. It is common to the souls of men. And so we have a a sort of commiseration. We share a similar misery in our propensity toward hypocrisy with those that are being directly addressed in our passage today. Just so you know, it's one of the reasons why you've heard me using the word the religiously initiated quite often. I know the text is speaking about the Jew, and we ought to pay attention to that many times in Romans 2. In fact, I think the strongest argument that is pretty much that Romans 2 is written to leave the Jew without excuse, where Romans 1 was written to give the Gentile, to leave him without excuse. And yet, we ought to understand ourselves as similarly religiously initiated. Remember the structure of Paul's argument in this passage. He sets forth two sets of four claims by the self-proclaimed Jew. That, that is the one who knows that he himself is religiously initiated. He knows that he has knowledge of God. And he knows that he has a commission to make that knowledge known in the world. And these two sets of four claims are broken into the personal and the relational. We've already seen the personal in the first part. And now we turn to the relational. Look with me where we see that you are a guide to the blind, he says, of the Jew in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. You are, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, second, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, and a teacher of children. What we have here is the relational or horizontal component to being having that great grace, the very blessing of God's law as a Jew, a guide to the blind. Perhaps you might write a few scriptures in your margin here for each of these. Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, it says, and if the blind lead the blind, both fall into a pit. Jesus speaking, particularly and often using this same sort of metaphor with the Pharisees. The the Bible admits that there are those who are blind who are in danger of falling into a pit. And he admits the category as a good category of those who would lead the blind not into a pit. Like that's a good thing. Except for it ought not be the blind who are leading the blind or they'll both fall in the pit. Do you see that? The issue is that there are those who are a guide to the blind that do not realize that they themselves are blind and are in danger. We're also told that those who have the law are a light to those in darkness. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23. For the commandment is a lamp and a teaching, and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. The word of the Lord is light. And it's profitable when that very word of the Lord is used to discipline or instruct others. This is good. It's profitable. If you yourself see by that light. Third, an instructor of of the foolish. 
The book of Proverbs is the great wisdom book of the scriptures. It's the wisdom, it's the, the wisdom book that finds the, the law of God as its foundation and then unpacks that for a variety of, of wisdom that the fool would be made wise. But note that the one who instructs with the Proverbs presumes that he himself has been made wise, kind of like the one who leads the blind, that he can see and get them there safely. But this is what James 3.1 says, not many of you should presume to become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. There's a seriousness to the one who presumes to be an instructor of the foolish. And friends, if you have the light, if you have been disciplined by the way of the Lord, you ought to instruct the foolish. But there is a caution. Fourth, teacher of children. Again, in order to teach or instruct, one presumes to be yourself in some way mature. That is not an error to see that the word of God has worked in you to bring you to a place to help those who are young, particularly in the faith. If one is mature, if one's been instructed by God and and by his word and has come to prize the word so that it has made you wise, you ought to counsel others and love your neighbor in that way. None of this is being presented negatively in the scripture. It's love. This is the role given by God to the Jewish people as a whole, as a light to the Gentiles, a sort of city on the hill that would be instructive. Look at the beauty of the way of the Lord being manifest among this people. And all of this, we're told in this passage, all of these four things is because, verse 20 in the second half, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And underline that. That is a beautiful description of what it, it means to be a possessor of the law. If you have the very word of God that reveals the character of God and the, the nature of man, we have knowledge and truth. Again, this is a a foundational statement upon which the previous four statements stand. So you can see there's a clear logic in the outline that the Apostle Paul is laying out. He makes four statements and then a ground. And then in moving to the relational aspect, he makes four statements again and then gives us the ground. After repeatedly calling the Pharisees blind guides, Jesus has this exchange with them. Listen to this little interplay between Jesus and the Pharisees. John chapter 9, verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. I want you to see something. They aren't blind. Now, they're the blind leading the blind, but they're not the blind leading the blind because they don't know. They're not actually ignorant of the truth. They do have access to the law of God. And that's what makes their hypocrisy all the worse. They ought to know 
and yet they walk in foolishness. They ought to know the righteousness of God, and yet they put on the self-righteousness of hypocrisy, as if they themselves were the light, as if they themselves were those who were able in themselves to lead the blind. Friends, that is the way to the pit. Again, Paul is pressing forward an argument. It's one that he began back in chapter one. Neither the Jew nor the Gentile are without excuse for sin. That is the banner, that is the umbrella, this is a bracket of this whole section. Hear it, the Jew, I'm sorry, the Gentile suppresses the truth in open debauchery. And the Jew suppresses the truth in hidden hypocrisy. And here's what Paul says, in this case, to the Jew in their hidden hypocrisy. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And so we have the personal, we have the relational, and now we have the hypocritical. Let me summarize. Paul is saying to the Jew, you know God, you know his will, you know his way. I'm not arguing with that. You, and you presume to instruct others with the open claim that you have access to the law, to the embodiment of knowledge and the truth. And just like Jesus with the Pharisees, I'm not going to argue with you. You do have access to the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Do you not see that? Because of your hypocrisy, this is a self-accusation. Just like the Pharisees, you're right. You're not blind, which leaves only one possibility for your failure to walk in the way of the Lord. It's a failure of humility. You're not blind. You're evil. You're not blind. You are righteously under judgment. It's for that reason that Jesus lays out a list of woes. For the hypocrite. Paul gives three quick examples. We don't have to look at them long because they're just quick examples. He says, while preaching against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols and yet you rob temples? Two, three quick examples. Against stealing, do you steal? Do you maintain honesty in all of your dealings? I mean, really, that's what you do? You're like, I mean, I don't steal. I mean, I know what stealing looks like. But you know what stealing looks like. You do. And you know that a failure to maintain honesty in your dealings and to work every angle is stealing. And you do it willfully. You even conspire together. To these things, even to conspire together to sort of an agreement that there's a little group of people that won't call each other out for those sort of corner cuttings. Not commit adultery, and yet do you commit adultery? You see, sexual sin is often publicly preached against, but quietly indulged in. I mean, it has a peculiar nature to that, doesn't it? It's the sort of thing that, that many will say, yes, that's wrong. Yes, what we saw in the debauchery of chapter one is that's evil, so clearly evil. And yet privately, in the corners and in the hidden places, with a level of pretending and performing, we try to carve out ways to commit adultery. 
You abhor idols and yet rob temples. Now, this is an interesting one. We're not really sure which of perhaps at least two options this is referring to. On the one hand, it might mean some manner of dealing with idol worship, whether in dealing in gold and silver and making exchange with those who fashion idols, though not personally worshiping the idol yourself. Like you would never, you would never actually worship an idol, but you'll deal, you'll deal in the goods and services to provide for the worship of idols and profit off of it. Or on the other hand, simply withholding from God praise and contribution. I don't really care which one it is. We do both. And all of this is boasting in the law, it says, but dishonoring God by breaking the law. Now, I've, I've heard it said why that, that many in the culture, many in the community around us, if we look at the passage, it says that you boast in the law and dishonor God by breaking law, verse 24, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's as Pastor Chan used to say over at Cross Point Lake Nona, he would say, why would I convert to your God that you worship on Sunday when I've already converted to the God that you worship all of the other six days of the week? And God is blasphemed in the midst of the culture because we steal, we commit adultery, we rob temples. And some I know will say, no, I don't. <laughs> like, no, I really don't. Yes, you actually do. <laughs> and that's the response to some. Yes, you do. You just are hiding it. You've hidden it so well that you think you can maintain hiding it by saying again, no, I don't. No, I don't. And for some of you, the answer is this morning, like not theoretically, not theologically. Some, the answer this morning is, yes, you actually do. And some will say, no, I don't. And the answer is, well, I know kind of you don't. I mean, you're right. It didn't really get you with that one. But look a little closer. I mean, Jesus has kind of a sermon on this. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just give you an example. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I say that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we say, no, I don't. He says, I mean, I know. I know not, not quite like that. You, you couldn't be thrown in prison for it or, or in any way judged among men, but your heart, you want to. You don't love God nor his way. You love what you feel God is withholding from you by his law. And for others, the answer would be, you're right, you don't. I mean, really, those three things aren't really a big issue for you. But let's just go further down the list. Maybe by some miracle, you can escape the judgment of the short list that Paul rattles off. But you know, that's not all. I mean, there is anger, there's lies, there's covetousness. Do we have to go on? Or can we stop saying, no, I don't and say, look, if we keep going on like this, perhaps the answer in our prayer of confession should be, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Is there any good news for a sinner like me? And that's where we come to in our service. So, oh God, you're great and you're holy and you're majestic and we sing about you. And I am not. Again, <laughs> you're right. Is there any good news for people like us? 
We're going to come back to it again next week, but Paul's going to press this point home in verses 25 through 29. It's true that the Gentile has the glorious blessing, the very words of God by which he knows God, he knows God's will, and he knows God's way. But in reality, the hypocrite, though a Jew according to the flesh, who has not taken hold of the great blessing of conforming his life to the hope that is found in God. Remember that Paul's building an argument that none, not the Jew nor the Gentile, are righteous before God. There's none who will escape impending judgment. And where Paul is going is to clearly proclaim to all that Jew and Gentile are in need of the gospel, which is where we're situated in the prayer of confession. There's not a person in the room, including the one who is teaching, who ought teach himself, that is not situated in the place. Is there any good news? Is there any good news? Verses 23 and 24, we've already looked at it, but just one more time. You boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. You dishonor God. And that's the issue. You see, the accusation is this. You use these benefits as religious weapons against others rather than a tutor for your own soul. Does that fit any of our hearts? Do we have any prick of conscience that we use the the law of God as a religious weapon to beat others down so we're the last man standing and then we'll be approved, right? And so we dishonor God in the eyes of the world rather than honoring God by loving his righteous way. This pressing issue is not the righteousness or, or hypocrisy of any man. The most pressing issue is the honor of God in our eyes and in the eyes of those who are around us. You see, the Jew does have the knowledge of God. With his words, he instructs others on on how to demonstrate that God is worthy and his way is good. And yet by his hypocrisy, not by his words, by, by his hypocrisy, he actually proclaims that God is not good. And that his way does not satisfy. And I find myself again saying this is not exclusive only to this particular religious initiated people, is it? Hypocrisy doesn't only dishonor God because of the hypocrisy itself, but because the very one who ought to know that God alone is worthy, that his way alone will satisfy the soul in his disregard for that law of God. He says that God is not worthy. And he says that God does not satisfy the soul. Do you see it? In this way, the, God's, the name of God is dishonored among the very ones that are supposed to look in on our words and see a people satisfied in God. And instead, even those who have access to the glorious way of God exchange the truth of God for a lie. You see, that's damning because that's what's said of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the ones that exchange the truth of God for a lie and the suppression of the truth and all of their wicked immorality. But it's actually said of the one who has the law that exchanges also the truth of God for the lie. The Gentiles in Romans 1, 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. The problem is the honor of God. And Romans 2, 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. The Gentiles 
dishonor God. The Jews dishonor God. And in both of these, and there is no other category, they set themselves up in opposition to God and his way, which is why what, what the Apostle Paul is doing, he's, he's building toward that. We've already pointed to it almost every week. Romans 3.22. Look at it. Turn. Look at it. Romans chapter 3, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the point. The glory, the honor of God is the point, and all malign it. I would offer four implications for us before we close. You too know God. If you didn't know God before this morning, you know something of him now. You and I have access to God We have access to his beautiful will and his excellent way. The danger and the gravity of hypocrisy in the church in light not only of our access to God in his word, but to access to his proclamation in the gospel of Jesus Christ is an even greater hypocrisy in view of the law of God pointing to the gospel of God. We have an even fuller, richer proclamation. Hypocrisy is a problem. Second, it's good, not evil to instruct others. If you know God, if you know his way, if you know his gospel, it is a right impulse to make him known. In fact, it is part of the instruction and command and purpose and revealed will of God. Paul's warning is not against teaching others, but against failing to teach yourself. It's just you're leaving one out in the global mission statement. You think that it's for the globe without recognizing that you're a part of it. Teach, teach yourself. And when we instruct others in the way of God, we do so as a people situated under the knowledge of God, not above it, under it. As we see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, it's the pattern of the one who has been strengthened by grace. Have you been strengthened by grace? Do you know the gospel of God so that you've been strengthened by his mercy, his steadfast love, his grace? If that's true, then entrust this grace to others who themselves will be able to teach it to others. It's good to teach. Third, it's evil to dishonor God with hypocrisy. It's not just a problem. It's not just something that we're kind of stuck with because it happens. It's evil. It's worthy of God's judgment. It's worthy of Jesus's woe. Those who know the truth about God must be warned when they consider themselves righteous like God. You see, we know the truth of God, but we ought not to consider ourselves in and of ourselves righteous like him. Hypocrisy is lurking in the evil desires of the heart. Let them be laid bare before him and it will ultimately Ultimately, the hypocrisy that that finds its way into the lurking desires of your heart will make its way out in your behavior, one way or another, eventually. And so let it be found out. Let the truth of God, let the glory of God, let the honor of God, who alone is worthy, find you out. And then teach yourself 
If you have a prick of conscience this morning, listen. Have you heard it? Do you know? Could you write down, no, you won't, because you're sitting next to someone. That very thing that is a prick of conscience, be situated under the teaching. God's honor is at stake. Listen, I've often said that the hardest thing about the proclamation of the word and preaching is that I'm also the first to hear the application of the scripture. It's one of the most difficult things. You see, I know where this is going, and yet I'm the one who has to say it. I found myself numerous times and in numerous ways over the course of the past week confronted by hypocrisy. And it's not because I was reading the news. It wasn't because I was thinking about how this applies to the church. Much of what is tucked away in the corners of my heart need the exposure of this very text. It is a gracious conviction of the Holy Spirit that I am aware of my own failure at all. I'm teaching myself right now, this morning. I've heard, I've had the prick of conscience. Have you? Listen. If there's any prick of conscience, teach yourself. And after all has been said this morning, it would be easy to think that the main application is that we need to pursue moral purity. And then we think that we've earned some sort of arbitrary standard or percentage of self-righteousness, then we can begin to teach others to conquer that little prick of conscience that we had this morning while not allowing ourselves to continue to be examined and recognize that we're still under the light of God. But it's not the message of God's law, which includes his covenant promise of atonement. And it's not the message of Romans that you would conquer your sin and establish yourself before the Lord God righteous because you had a prick of conscience sometime in February, 2024. Remember, our passage this morning exists not in a vacuum, but in a flow of a well-reasoned argument. Paul's simply knocking the self-righteous legs out from under the legalistic hypocrite. And he does this as he moves forward to the proclamation of the one hope for both the Jew and the Gentile, which is not your perfect moral purity, but is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning... I call you to know the true knowledge of God that comes neither by knowing the law nor teaching others, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's a strong statement. The true knowledge of God doesn't come by a knowledge of the law, nor by the teaching of others, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's where he's going. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And if I want to know more about this gospel, I will pay attention to the law and the prophets that bear witness to it. But the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And that's what we want, isn't it? Do we want our own personal arbitrary moralism? We want the very righteousness of God. The law and the prophets aren't silent. The greatest value that they have to teach us is to look forward to atonement 
finally revealed in the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The argument continues, verse 27 of chapter 3. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works. No, by the law of faith. Faith excludes our boasting. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In the end, neither the Jew nor the Gentile can boast of anything, neither in a knowledge of the law of God or an excuse that we can have because we didn't know. We're all sinners. We all dishonor God. And we may only be justified through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I take us to Philippians chapter one. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Speaking of our love for God that we have received by grace through faith. My prayer that your love may abound more and more with a knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes by a renewed commitment this morning to destroy that prick of conscience. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Why? It, because it's to the glory and praise of God. Do you see the beauty of redeeming grace? It's not by our knowledge of the law that we're made righteous. As a people who are partakers of grace, we're granted a new affection. It's by a love for the things of God, not by a moralistic conformity neither by pretending nor performing, but a love abounding more and more, an appreciation for the great grace of God that confronts by the proclamation of the gospel sinners like ourselves situated in a prayer of confession. And we come to approve that's excellent. And so too is his way. It's the work of Jesus Christ that cleanses and forgives sin and that brings transforming grace that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And all of this comes through Jesus, a righteousness revealed apart from the law. And all of this is glory and praise to God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for confronting us with reality this morning. I thank you for every Something tells me the multitude of the prick of conscience. It's grace. Lord, I pray that we would not wait till next week, but we would bring that to you in humble confession now. And that as we come to the table of grace to remember your broken body and your shed blood, that we would see that that is for that sin and that hypocrisy and that hidden thing, that it would not be hidden but it would be revealed in the cross of Christ. And we would see that we are worthy of judgment, but we have received grace. I pray that you would grow up in us a love for you, a love for your way, a willingness to confess because our sin has been atoned for. And Lord, I pray that your name would be honored in our community as we are not only those who proclaim the gospel but cling to it as the sweetness that it is. Thank you, Lord. If you would do any of this, it is your grace and kindness to us, and yet it's your way, and so we expect it. 
Thank you, God. Thank you for your grace on us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.